This week, we look at the quasi-futuristic film iRobot. And along the way, we ask, are Chuck Taylors just gone in 2035? Why doesn't Will Smith use a shower curtain? And is Del Spooner right to be leery of robots? This is Force-Fed Sci-Fi. Hello, everybody, and welcome to what is sure to be another thrilling, death-defying episode of the Force-Fed Sci-Fi Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Chris Rupp, and I am joined with my other half, the non-robotic Sean Michael Culp. That is a very appropriate self-given nickname for this week because we are discussing iRobot today. Will Smith, baby. Will Smith. And uh, we recently had an episode of Men in Black. Yeah. So that kind of kicked off the Will Smith science fiction suite of his yeah, films. Yeah, when he did a, he jumped into sci-fi, kind of like Bruce Willis in the 90s. So Will Smith is our uh, Bruce Willis of the 2000s. <laughs> Well, I think Will Smith has done a better job yeah. of keeping up the trend of continuing to be in science fiction films. Oh yeah, that's like his genre. He does a he does a great job. Though we will talk about like his transition, like with how he portrays sci-fi. He's he does a darn good job though. So iRobot, just a quick breakdown of the plot for everybody. So iRobot is set in 2035 in Chicago. We will talk about that at some point, where uh, a techno-paranoid homicide detective named Del Spooner- Techno-paranoid? Techno-paranoid. Is that what they said online, or is that your own- That is my own- Chris Rupp's own creation? That is Chris Rupp's patented film breakdown. Techno-paranoid. Yeah, maybe it's on the DSM-5, I don't know. So he's called in to investigate the death of a legendary robotic engineer named Alfred Lanning. And he's forced to confront his own demons and prejudices while realizing that nothing is as it seems in this mystery. No, it blows his mind. You literally see his mind get blown a metaphorical, (laughs) philosophical level. This film definitely unfolds in a unique way. We'll certainly get to that in a later part of the episode. But as we mentioned, this movie is starring Will Smith, but... I want to talk about the cast and crew here. Bridget, what is that? Moynihan? I'm going to butcher these names. Oh, Bruce Greenwood, Mm -hmm. the holy James Cromwell. The legendary James Cromwell. Yeah, the man. Then we have uh, a little appearance from Shy McBride. Shout out to him. He was on uh, House. I don't know if you've ever seen that. No, you've never seen House MD? No. I'm pretty good. Hugh Laurie. Check it out, man. Though that isn't a movie recommendation. Man, you know show. like how many things are in my Netflix list right now and on my HBO Go? Like I cannot commit to watching another show right now. Dude, I, I, it's not on Netflix. I literally have the physical dividend copy man well good for you i cannot commit myself to watching another new show (laughs) i finally have just been able to put deadwood to rest so was the wood dead oh lord (laughs) (laughs) and then we have uh alan uh what is that tudic 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 yes in a very great one of the og performance capture roles i didn't even know it was performance capture Mm -hmm. it was solid yeah, he's become a bit of a legend in that community up there with uh, Andy Serkis. Because mm. prior to this film, really the only performance capture we had in Hollywood was the Lord of the Rings films. Andy Serkis. And then this came out, and then we've had a whole bunch since then, Avatar being one of the biggies. Yeah. Uh, several roles in the new Star Wars films are performance capture. 
a couple of Robert Zemeckis films like Monster House and A Christmas Carol. So performance capture is definitely a big thing in Hollywood these days. Or if you're uh, in the Star Wars world, it's used to resurrect dead actors like Peter Cushing and Carrie Fisher in Rogue One. Yeah. We know what you did. <laughs> we know what you did. And we're watching. Peter Cushing just looked weird in Rogue One. I didn't mind it, actually. Yeah, I, I, I thought mean, it was really cool that we could get another Peter Cushing role. But, um, you know, it, it, while I was watching, I was appreciating it for, like, all the work that they put on. It just made me worry about if, like, in the future that's what it's going to be. I know, like, uh, Robin Williams, actually, after he passed, he put a hundred-year ban on using his voice and likeness in future films. Because he doesn't want, you know, them doing that crap with him. I can tell you. Yeah, that we, we could wax about Robin Williams all day. Dude, all once day. we cover, if we ever cover Bicentennial Man, if we ever just trudge through that train wreck of a film. It's not a train wreck. It is a definite tearjerker and <laughs> definitely tugs on the heartstrings. Well, I'm sure now it will even more with him gone. But anyways, back to iRobot. So yeah, we've covered the cast a little bit. And this film was also directed by Alex Proyas, who prior to this directed The Crow. Oh, yeah, Which yeah, is yeah. a dark cult classic. Very starring, much Starring... So. Uh, Bruce the late Lee's. Brandon Lee, yeah. and then also directed uh, Dark City, oh. which is another film on our list. Definitely in the same style as uh, this film, I Robot. Um, I know the guy who wrote the film, actually. He wrote a couple different ones. Uh, what is that? Ikeva J. Goldsman? Yeah. He actually won an Oscar for Beautiful Mind, but then he also wrote Batman and Robin. <laughs> Batman Forever. I know. His like, career's hit and miss, because he wrote Batman Forever, Batman and Robin, then Beautiful Mind. But then he did, like, I Am Legend, Cinderella Man, Da Vinci Code, but then did Dark Tower and Transformers you know the last night. You know what it is? It's, it's overcorrection is what it is. Like, he does one really, really great movie, and then has to balance it out with one really, really bad movie. Well, that's what it looks like. Like, the mid-2000s, he did great. And then, like, recently, it's like Dark Tower, Transformers last night. So he's just up and down, man. Well, just look at John Travolta's acting choices over a course of 30 years. Yeah, everybody <laughs> everybody does this. John Travolta. Dude, just say his name. You you know what? I would actually recommend a John Travolta film, Taking Pelham 1, 2, 3. Oh, no. If you like seeing him just go berserk on a train with Denzel Washington, well, check it out, man. You know, I would have to counter that with your crazy John Travolta film with another crazy John oh, Travolta please. film by recommending Broken Arrow. Broken Arrow? With Christian Slater. I haven't even heard of Yeah, that. so they play these two Air Force pilots who are running the... Uh, test mission on a, a fictional b3 stealth bomber and john travolta just goes nuts and tries to kill Cl christian slater and sell a nuclear weapon for what? like 150 million dollars <laughs> where the going rate of those things is like a billion dollars oh my god and the jet that they crash in the movie is worth like two and a half billion so easily what they could have done instead of wrecking the plane is landing it somewhere in the arizona desert and selling it to the highest bidder and say hey by the way there's a nuclear warhead on board can i get a bonus does he like ham it up during the film too. You would not believe. Yes! He awkwardly smokes his cigarette. Yes! He kills a dude by crushing his windpipe <laughs> with a maglite flashlight. Oh, I, I kid you it. not. I have to see this man. I love that man. So yeah, that is a. Uh, so if you want two not sci-fi movie recommendations of the week, we've got a fistful, two fistfuls of John Travolta films for you. Fistful of them. All right. So, so back to iRobot. Back to iRobot. <laughs> so this movie was made on a budget of $120 million. Yes. Which in 2019 money, that comes out to about $160 million. Oh. So still a pretty sizable budget then and now. That's huge, yeah. Yeah. 
So this the script of this film was originally based on a series of short stories written by Isaac Asimov. Mm-hmm. Um, the script originally had no connections to the stories, but it started based on an original screenplay from Jeff Vintar mm-hmm. called Hardwired. From what I read, they pretty much took uh, Vintar's screenplay and just changed up a few details and we get mm-hmm. iRobot. Yeah, like they said... They were tooling with not having humans and just have like a detective interviewing robots throughout the film, which would be dope for an indie film, but not for like a hundred twenty, hundred sixty million dollar budget film. Yeah. I don't think anyone would see it. Well, this film was originally acquired by Disney. Yeah. And Brian Singer, uh, Singer was attached to direct it. Ooh, the great Brian Singer. Well, not recently. He dropped out of directing Bohemian Rhapsody for unknown reasons. He missed that. Oh, man. That film was awesome. But then 20th Century Fox acquired the rights and signed Alex Proyas to direct and brought Vinter back to polish the screenplay with help from Akiva Goldsman. So seems like everything was going good with the movie. Yeah. Um, the title changed to iRobot and incorporated the Three Laws of Robotics, mm-hmm. which was a, a big cornerstone of Asimov's original stories. So I feel like this is a, a good time to talk about the Three Laws of Robotics and where they fit in now in pop culture and yes. sci-fi genre. Because the laws are, do you have them? Yes. Because I got them too. Like the first law is may not a robot may not injure a human or allow them to be injured. Yeah. The law too is a robot must obey the orders given to it by a human being except where such orders conflict with the first law. And then the third is the robot must protect its own existence as long as it's not in conflict with rule one and two. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of cool. Yeah. So law one is saying, you know, a robot you know, can't punch a human being in the chest. Yeah. And Fair rule enough. two is a human cannot tell a robot to punch a human being in the chest. <laughs> right. They're protecting us from ourselves and from them. Yeah. And then law three is a robot must protect its own existence. Like, yeah. for instance, I think um, this is probably a very poor explanation, but like if a car was screaming down the road at it, it could stop the car mm-hmm. as long as that action doesn't hurt a human being. Yeah. So instead of going all the way through the hood and yeah. just like decapitating the human they'd move their hands slightly to the left or just jump out of the way because i think that's the simpler but these r- laws are the foundation of almost every film involving robots since yeah. the collection of stories came out like um forbidden planet has references to these laws bicentennial man and even robocop as a variation of the three laws or in sub in other films like Blade Runner, there's a version of the laws that's referenced in building the robots. And even the positronic brain is brought up in future media because in Star Trek The Next Generation, Data, the android, has a positronic brain. So this dude like influenced sci-fi for years and yeah. years to come. Isaac Asimov, I think, doesn't get enough credit for being no. a science fiction legend. And this came out in the... 40s yeah they didn't compile it into the book until 50 which is just nuts if you think about how ahead of his time he was yeah and also how many different pieces of media that the three laws have found themselves into Mm -hmm. it's crazy i mean i just lifted listed a quick list and i'm sure there's dozens of others that we we could spend the rest of the show talking about yeah Asimov deserves to be up there with greats like Philip K. Dick and Ray Bradbury. Oh, yeah. So, Isaac Asimov, we thank you. Shout outs, man. Google him, folks, back home. (laughs) Or buy iRobot, the book. I mean, it's great. I don't know. But check it out. 
It's a good read. And it's a short story, so it's not like a long, yeah, like 600 pages. So I think now we can get into the meat and potatoes of the movie. Ooh. So first off, I want to start by getting this out of the way. This movie is set in Chicago. 2035. Yeah. Now, we recently just watched a film that was set in Chicago, A Sound of Thunder in a mm-hmm. previous episode, where that movie looked nothing like Chicago. Well, I mean, could you get by the CGI Chicago? <laughs> no. I mean, <laughs> granted, you had a fraudulently inflated budget, so yes. you had to make do with what you got. Whereas in this movie, we get some aerial shots of Chicago, mm-hmm. and apparently in 19 years, 18 years or whatever- Uh, The city planners are able to solve the infrastructure issue and build 10-lane, one-way superhighways that just get rid of all the traffic problems. They just, like, combine Wacker Drive into just this giant hole. Which I love how, like, how these future films are all like that. There's just going to be these giant super lane highways everywhere. I was not a fan of the depiction of Chicago in this movie. (laughs) In this depiction of Chicago, Lake Michigan is dried up. Yeah. How (laughs) did that happen? And then also there is a, this not even half finished, this just beginning of a construction of a bridge connecting Chicago going from Chicago. It's not even a beginning. It's like a piece of a suspension bridge from New York that's just plopped in the robot <laughs> landfill that's become dried up Lake Michigan. Chris is not very happy about this bridge. I think it's kind of cool going over a nice... You you would never think about taking a drive, Chris, over the nice water. I'm more upset that Lake Michigan has dried up, and instead of trying <laughs> to find a way to refill it, they put a robot landfill in it. They did put a robot landfill. So when they die, all their oil just keeps seeping into the... Yeah, the you create tux. a bigger environmental problem... <laughs> On top of the lake has dried up. But they stopped fuel or petroleum because when uh, Will Smith's riding his motorcycle, the scientist is like, you have gas in this? You know, that explodes. So I just took that as, oh, they don't use petroleum. It's like, in the thank future. you, Madam Obvious. <laughs> Apparently they solve fuel. They solve the traffic problems. It looks like they solve crime but for the most part. But they did not solve global warming yet. No. Because <laughs> the lake's dried up. Great infrastructure planning by building a bridge. So, yeah. all, right, all right, it's hit or miss, man. That's like a realistic depiction of life. I do want to ask this, though. Like, there have been a lot of movies that have either filmed or mm-hmm. have been set in Chicago. Where does this movie rank on that list? Like, compared to Dark Knight well, and Batman There's Begins? been a ton of other movies that have filmed and in Chicago. I mean, The Dark Knight, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, yeah. The Blues Brothers, The Fugitive, Backdraft, Road to Perdition. So there have been a lot of great Movies that have been either set or filmed in Chicago. That's a darn good list. I, I mean, my number one's probably either Bat, any of the Batman ones or probably The Fugitive. Yeah. But that's more of a bias because I just love The Fugitive. Well, yeah. I mean, you and I have lived in Chicago all our lives. Yeah. And to me, I love when a production comes to Chicago because it's fun and you get to see you know your town on screen mm-hmm. so we're wondering out there audience like if you're if you live in a city or a state where they are filming television or film productions and they kind of and they do it wrong how does that make you feel yeah or and give us shout outs to like some films that are uh where it's done wrong well cuz <laughs> you know i just watched this film on netflix like backdraft 2 okay what they made a sequel to backdraft for some reason and it's set in chicago what is backdraft I don't even know what that is. So it's a firefighter film starring uh, Billy Baldwin, Kurt Russell, Scott Glenn. Okay. It's actually set in Chicago. They play Chicago firefighters who are tracking down an arsonist. And they made a sequel to it for whatever reason. So did the first one come out like when they were young? 
the first one came out in like 1992, and okay. the second one literally just came out. Oh, so they're like old firefighters now. No, Did they most get the of them same? are dead. Oh, okay. <laughs> so they didn't. I don't want to spoil Backdraft because it actually is a really <laughs> good movie. I do recommend people see it. But you don't want to spoil Backdraft too. No, because there's just back- a lineup for Backdraft too. I will Everyone's spoil Backdraft too because that movie's <laughs> doo doo stew. But that is movie- Kurt Russell in it? No, he's dead. But it's set in Chicago, and they filmed it in Canada. Oh my gosh! Come on, because I'm looking up the street signs and like. Where is this? At? Where is this in Chicago? This is not even. I like cool. to think I'm pretty familiar with the city, mm-hmm. but I could not, for the life of me, figure out where anything was in that movie. And the same thing happens with iRobot. Yeah, I, I felt like they filmed it, but not really. It was like all soundstage and CGI. All they did was take a couple of aerial shots and kind of splice that into the edit of the movie. Yeah. Because while he was like walking through the streets, I'm like, I really don't see a lot of like infrastructure from Chicago. Uh, well, I guess when he's walking and he meets Shia LaBeouf the first time, they were like showing like the train rails and stuff, but yeah, there's not can, much. That can just be in a set too. But then again, you were saying off air, like sometimes when you watch films like with recognition with your dad, like the Blues Brothers, he just, he keeps pointing out everything. My dad has lived in Chicago his whole life. And every time we watch the Blues Brothers, he likes to point out A, either buildings that aren't there anymore or B, where certain locations are and where he knows it. And he does this every single time we watch it. He's like, oh, that was filmed there. Like, I know, Dad, because you brought this up the last 25 times we watched the movie. <laughs> it's not a surprise anymore. It's worn off. I, you know, I actually do that same thing, though. I'll be like, oh, oh, I could drive. I know that. So Sean does his Al Pacino voice whenever he recognizes a film location. <laughs> Even in theaters, you'll just be like, <laughs> People will be like, Al, are you there? <laughs> but Chicago, yeah, I, I don't know. This is better than a Sound of Thunder's depiction by far, but no. I wouldn't rank it a top 10. <laughs> it ranks very low on the list of films set in Chicago. Yes. You know, and we recently just did an episode where we reviewed Her. Mm-hmm. And we talked about depiction of the future in that movie versus the depiction of the future in this film. Mm -hmm. And her is set, I think, in like 2077. Yeah. And this film was set in 2035. And there's just a massive difference in how the future is portrayed in both of those movies. Maybe in her, in that 40-year time span between 35 and like 77, the humans took over the robots. And they said, you know what? We tried this, but no, we want to be self-reliant again. Yeah, well, in 2035, apparently there's just this quantum leap forward in In robotics and technology. Tons. You can even, like, make a robotic arm, robot lungs. I thought that was awesome because we're working on things like that Mm -hmm. technological-wise, and that is awesome. And I am hoping for the day where I can just replace my old liver with a cybernetic one. You'll never die. (laughs) No, I can You can just just spray new skin on your arm. Yeah. That's just nuts, man. I could be tan. I mean, Spooner had a reason for doing that. Yeah. But the technology in this movie almost seemed like it was a crutch for mm-hmm. humanity. Because yeah. we had FedEx robots. We had dog walker robots. We had garbage robots. You had demolition, construction robots. They do like, they probably do like all the jobs that no one wants to do themselves. They're pretty much like, I would say like blue collar jobs. Like, you know, I'm sure if you walked into the McDonald's there. You'd see like a robot taking the order. You know, John Oliver actually did a pretty good segment on his show a couple of weeks ago about okay. job automation. 
mm-hmm. and how it's creating almost this scare in the workforce. Mm-hmm. Like when he brought up the point, like when uh, banks introduced ATMs in the 80s, a lot of tellers were fearful that like the ATM would replace them. Mm-hmm. And it really didn't. All it did was take away a lot of the menial tasks that like tellers do in the first place, like yeah. uh, deposits and withdrawals, and it frees them up to do more complex tasks. I'm sure like there's always a little bit that gets cut off, like some people lose their gigs, but they still like use tellers like nowadays. They're still there. So there will be like in the future, because everyone's always talking about it, like John Oliver with the job automation. I think some people will lose their gigs, but like with coding now being such a big thing that's up and coming, there's going to be new job markets. If you ask somebody 100 years ago what jobs would look like 100 years from 1919, yeah. They would have no idea. It is the same thing now. If you ask somebody now what jobs, what the job market or jobs will look like in um, twenty one nineteen, we don't know. There no. could be jobs that don't exist right now that are a big time thing. Yeah, ask anyone from the eighties. Did you think cell phones were going to be real? Like what a cell phone is? I mean, it's you just... mean a cell phone that didn't weigh thirty pounds? Yeah, right. You couldn't dig a foxhole with it and chuck it at someone. <laughs> Good God. Like, it's just nuts how we're progressing technologically. But this film was a stark contrast between the use of technology. Oh, yeah. Because in iRobot, the technology is more of like a crutch. There's an over-reliance on it. Whereas in her, it's just kind of like an aid. Yeah. Like, hey, can you help me sort my emails? And there's always going to be a need for humans in the job market. Mm Mm-hmm. Like later in the film, uh, Dr. Calvin mentions that the USR has military contracts with pretty much every branch, which to me is a mistake. And I'm sure you having more experience in that field can attest to this. Like there's just certain things like battlefield decisions shouldn't be left up to a robot. No, no. Well, we try. There's always like they're always attempting because the whole point in the military is to like lessen uh, deaths on the battlefield. So if they can create something like a robot that can like take off the cost of a soldier, because like soldiers are expensive, man. They're like worth, I want to say a hundred thousand dollars per head at least, and like training, like just one. So like if you can take that off the battlefield and lessen that casualty rate, but you'll never be able to do that with a robot thinking like a human being is effective. You know, being able to make a quick decision. If something doesn't go right. Well, that takes a lot of coding. Yes. Too. There's so many situations that can happen in a battlefield or even when uh, comparing like say there's a battlefield robot general versus a FedEx robot. Mm -hmm. There's so many scenarios that can pop up that you have to code for. Because if you program a robot to deliver a package, it's going to deliver that package whether or not it has to walk through a building. Exactly. But you have to code where the streets are, where the sidewalks are, where the street lights are. It's There's so much work that goes into coding. So shout outs, I guess, and force-fed sci-fi's take on the economy and job market for this episode. <laughs> Go into the coding market, man. There's there's a need. I would say um, also another kind of interesting thing with like job like contracts for the military have you ever seen war dogs yes yeah that's like super real where like private sector people can do contracts anyone could pick it up and they always go to the lowest bidder yes so there's no monopolizing on that so just like remember the idea... any piece of equipment that you're probably holding yeah was built by the lowest bidder yep 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 and it's not exclusive to military tech oh yes i know <laughs> but it is kind of cool that anyone can and also usr um that's a real thing USR Robotics? That's yeah. in Schaumburg, Illinois. But I wonder if they got any like residuals or anything from 
having their USR robotics. I would think they had to, or at least they got a bump in business. Yes. Uh, there's some things about the future in this film that I thought were a bit off, mm-hmm. and you brought this up. What, what was the thing in the cafe that bothered you? Oh, besides the product placement? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The endless product. So this movie was in 04, and I didn't know that smoking was, you know, destroyed in 08. But so there's smoking in diners still in 2035. And then the cost of like three beers was like 46.50. Yeah, that which was, was just nuts. I would hope that Spooner ate something it to just make made, that bill be almost $50. It made me wonder, like, how, <laughs> like, how did he make money? Or is that job as a detective super, like, he's getting paid six figures a year? It didn't seem like he was doing a ton of work, so... No, and he lived in kind of a small apartment with no uh, with no shower curtain. Oh, God. Because <laughs> Will Smith wanted his butt to be shown. Apparently, he wanted this to be, like, full frontal nudity. No way. Yeah. He wanted to show how vulnerable his character was. <laughs> But this leads to the next point. I mean, do you think the CGI is overdone in this film? Uh, A little bit, I would say. But it was like a boom in that era in Hollywood. George Lucas with The Phantom Menace, Tech of the Clones came out where he just CGI'd everything. So Hollywood's like, let's jump on this bandwagon. So there were some scenes where it really felt like they were just green screening it up. And I think so. Like the robots climbing the tower at the end. I'm like, you just wanted to have you a bunch of ro- action shot. Yeah, there. like a Godzilla or uh, King Kong climbing the tower. But it, I mean, some of it was cool, but some of it was just like, I'm good. Although definitely what is a standout in this movie in terms of visual effects and acting performances, and we touched on this briefly, was mm-hmm. Alan Tudyk as Sonny. Yeah. I believe that that does it? deserve a special mention. This was in an age in Hollywood where performance capture wasn't exactly a thing yet. It's not. It was not as prevalent as it is now. Mm-hmm. And to give life to a robot in some way, I don't know. This was tricky at some point in Hollywood because yeah, we're we're used to seeing humanoid robots nowadays. Mm-hmm. But this was really one of the first roles that gave like an anthropomorphic feeling to a robot. Yeah, seemed like kind of like a person. Yeah. <laughs> Which was really cool. You know, he always referred to James Cromwell as my father. And and even he acknowledges with Spooner, he says, thank you. You said someone, not something. I really liked that. And I liked how Sonny was asking, like, what am I? And all that. Like, he was asking about the wink. And everything. that was really neat. Yeah. It kind of reminded me of, like, a little kid. Like, discovering, like, life and what it means to be human. Or when he asks Dr. Calvin, like, will the nanites hurt? Yeah! And, like, death and everything. That was so awesome. Those were the best moments in this film. Like, Sonny was probably my favorite part of the film. I mean, you have to to think Sonny was maybe, like, maybe the emotional equivalent of, like, a six or a seven-year-old. Yeah. So, it's interesting to watch him discover these emotions as a robot for the first time. When no other robot has experienced these things before. None. The ghost in the machine. And he evolved, I think, throughout the film. Because when he first started, he was super erratic. Like, he pounds the table when he gets upset. But later on, he really becomes really level-headed. It's really nice. Yeah, and Alan Tudyk has had a very um, storied career in Hollywood. I mean, Wash and Firefly, and then a lot of... Yeah, shout-outs to Firefly. Our producer, (laughs) Jeremy, loves that. Yeah, and he uh, kind of uh, dragged us around for not having seen it. <laughs> so I guess check out Firefly. Yeah. Yeah. But Alan, he's he's great. He's been in a couple of good movies, right? Yeah, he TV was um, 
uh, he played K2SO in Rogue One. Um, really? Yeah, he, had, he was. He's okay. done a lot of voice acting. Uh, he does. Uh, I think he was one of like the the red herring villain in the Big Hero Six film a few years ago. Oh, cool! I love that film. Yeah, he was. He's pretty good. He was in A Knight's Tale Forty Two, where he played the racist, racist. baseball manager. <laughs> yes. Wreck-It Ralph he was in, too. I forgot about that. Jesus. All right. Uh, he's also done a lot of live-action roles, too. Uh, he was in uh, 310 to Yuma. Uh, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, where he played uh, Stephen Douglas. I wish. Do I, does that film have sci-fi? No. Come oh. No, it does not. Love that film. Yeah, well, good for you. It's not going on the list. <laughs> Come on, guys. Recommend that film. No, it is not a sci-fi <laughs> film. Don't at me. At me. At me yeah, and well, Jeremy. And it's we'll, still not a science fiction we'll film. pressure That's, Chris. I need a gavel where I can just <laughs> lay down the verdict and say, no, it's not a science fiction film. <laughs> All right. But speaking of things that may have been overdone, I thought the slow motion effects was the lens flare of this film. Yes. Those Matrix moments, as so I've called them. So many slow motion shots. Like, let's see. He jumps off the motorcycle. And starts shooting people midair, which is another action movie trope. <laughs> he oh the uh, the chief I guess lieutenant that's just whips out the shotgun and then slow mo just starts shotgunning everyone. Yeah, in the office. and I have to ask this: How common are precinct invasions that he has to keep a twelve gauge shotgun under his desk? Number one and number two is that real? Or well, if you are a police officer, you're probably not going to tell us, but maybe hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Because I'm curious if that's like a real thing. They already have guns. They don't need to put shotguns under their desk. <laughs> and plus, who is dumb enough to walk in and start stuff in a police station? The robots. Yeah, well, the robots, because apparently they can't be killed, and they're just going around snapping people's necks like Gosh. twigs. I know. I did. I, I laughed, though, during that scene, because they're, they're like firing indoors at close proximity with everyone. I'm like, that's going to hurt somebody. And you're causing more harm than good. But there are some good action pieces in this movie. I felt that they were yes. on par with uh, Doomsday, another previous film we've covered. Yes. So, like, we discussed, I think the action films, like, the action scenes in this are great. It's just they didn't know how to end them. Yeah. Like, the car chase scene was awesome when the robots are just piling on until the end where you just start spinning around 360. At 125 miles an hour and then just does a quick left and he's fine. But I thought this was a great running movie, too. There was oh, so much yeah. running in this movie. You would have assumed it was written by Tom Cruise with right? how much running this film is. Like, you see Will Smith running everywhere, man. Well, especially when the demo bot is tearing the house apart. Yeah. And he's running with apparently these quarter mile long hallways. <laughs> I know why, like, the Cromwell is never home. Jesus, why? At Cause that it's impossible. age? Because like, to get from one end of the house to the other, you got to walk half a mile. You're, like, burning, like, 500 calories just walking around your house. Though, I do have to say that was probably my favorite action scene. Yeah. In this entire, that house just being uh, torn down. You know, if it Demo. weren't for the slow motion of him jumping on the door yes. and riding it out on Surfing. the wave of destruction... <laughs> and and grab and scoop while he is scooped up the cat. Though shout outs for them not killing it. Another animal like yes, in, uh, Doomsday. Doomsday, where they just murder a cow. Yeah, at least they didn't kill any animals for the sake of just showing us the weapons work. Thank you, I Robot. But yeah, that that killed it. Just the surfing, but everything else was dope. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. Where there there's these good action pieces, but they don't know how to finish them. They're incomplete. Yeah. 
even the scene where we find out Will Smith has a bionic arm, mm-hmm. where like, he, that could have been a great scene in the in this movie. Yeah, he gets thrown around, then all of a sudden he blocks it. And what does he say? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> His one line. He does is, that head tilt, and he goes, "Yeah." <laughs> and he's like, "All right, it's on now." How did you feel about Will Smith's one-liners? You know, compared to some of his other movies around this same time, it feels played out. Yeah. It it just seems like all he's good for is one-liners at this point. Yeah. Because he's done movies up to this point like Bad Boys, Independence Day, Men in Black. I think he did Ali before this too. So he's done great movies with great one-liners. And this just, just seemed like, okay, enough with the one-liners. Granted, he does have some good ones in the great. movie. Yeah. There's some moments that are just hilarious. Like, get off my car! <laughs> I'm like, yes! Or when he just looks at Bridget Moynihan after breaking into an apartment, you know, somehow, I told you so, just doesn't quite say it. Yes! But then some, it's just like, what? It's almost like the director was like, do what you did in Men in Black! Do it again! Yeah. It's like, no. Like, dude, that was 20 years ago. Let me do my thing. But he had great acting chops, though. I would yeah. say, like, when he tells her that... um you know, the car crash scene and everything. I was like, that's actually darn good acting. Yeah, I mean, the character itself is is a very well-rounded character. You yes. actually do get a glimpse into why Spooner is the way he is. He keeps talking about his ex-wife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have to know my ex-wife. Like, but that scene where we find out why Spooner has that uh, bionic arm was the that NS4 tried saving him and not Sarah. Mm-hmm. But it ripped out, it tore his arm to shreds and a few of his ribs and a lung. So really, do you think the robot did more harm than good in this case? Exactly. But I did like how this movie played out almost like a uh, an Agatha Christie novel. Okay. So there's a lot of noir elements in this film. The mystery is not put together until very near the climax mm-hmm. when Will Smith is at the landfill and he, has the, he puts down the hologram of Lanning yes. and it shows him everything that follows is a result of what you see here. Mm-hmm. And then you just see the, the slow build of the music and that red glow of the lights in the distance. And it turns out it's the NS5s that are just messing things up. Beating the crap out of the NS4s. They didn't even have a chance. Yeah, but up until this point in the movie, everything just kind of played out yeah, it's... very slow, like a, like a noir mystery. And everyone thought he was crazy because he just kept getting attacked by these robots. And they're like, oh, you just robot racist. You yeah. just don't like them. They're perfect. That was actually probably one of my favorite moments in the entire film when he pieces it together and you're like, oh my God. Yeah, because- and then he's racing back into the city and gets to Calvin's apartment in like two minutes from the landfill. Because <laughs> all this takes over, this all takes place over the course of like, what, two, three days? Yeah, that's insane. What a hell of a day, man. God, being that's a like police. Jack Bauer days. Yeah, man. It's one season is twenty four hours. God, the the suck. He got his money's worth. <laughs> do you really? Do you consider this to be a a kind of a noir film? I do. It's just they didn't know how to finish it. Yeah. Like once he pieced it together, they had the switcheroo with the boss. Like he thought it was the greedy CEO that was behind it all, and it's like, nope, surprise, it's Vicky. Yeah. If you know what you're looking for in terms of character. Uh, archetypes with mm-hmm. a noir film like this, you can pick 
people out pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Like you have the the skeptical yet savvy detective. You have the dead guy who kicks off the whole thing. You have the woman who's in the middle of it all. Yeah. And you have the the red herring villain. Turns out, oh, psych, there's actually a real villain. And it's the computer. And then you have the comedic, quote unquote, comedic relief with Shia LaBeouf. Shia LaBeouf. Who did not have to be in this movie. Let's get that out of the way right now. No, and he sucks at swearing. Yeah. Stop cussing and go home. That's literally all Will Smith says to him. You know, he should just leave out half of that line and just say, go home (laughs) his whole point for being in this film was to tell will smith that the scientist fired with her eyes closed yeah that's the whole point but yeah like the whole people fighting the robot scene i was like eh, i didn't need that but i get it i mean did you have a red shirt though at any point during that climax so my red shirt was actually early on and i like i love the first half of this film when it's the mystery elements and he's in the factory with all the NS5s and because Sonny runs away. And so he just like lines one up and he blows it away because apparently Sonny feels so he's going to like be afraid. But like he just murders this shell of a robot. There was nothing. That didn't would... know nothing. It was just literally a shell. Mm-hmm. That was mine too. Yeah. The poor robot just awakened. But we did say we how we were glad that the kitty didn't get killed. Yes. But otherwise there wasn't much human death aside from the CEO and then some of the cops. Some of the cops, yeah, during the climax when the robots just start crushing the necks. precinct and start going snap. That was nice. But outside of that, it was just a lot of robot death. Yeah, and this whole climax, too, I mean, it was enjoyable up until they're at the top of the tower mm-hmm. and then the camera starts moving all funky. Yeah, the cinematography got, I mean, they took chances, I feel like, like spinning it around and getting different angles. Maybe in 3D. It would have worked or something like that, but it's better than shaky cam. Exactly. I I was happy when I watched it. I'm like, this is way better than shaky cam, but it was just, if it was practical, like he was actually spinning around, that would be dope, but probably CGI. You know what frustrates me the most is Dr. Calvin suddenly learned to shoot really quick. Yes. And not five minutes before Dude. she was shooting a gun with her eyes closed. And now she is a marksman and is killing these evil NS5s left and right. It's like she just becomes this assassin. Robot assassin with a rifle. And also, too, I don't think Spooner ever reloads that gun he's using. No. I mean, that's like the John Wick gun of the yeah. submachine guns. It just, <laughs> it is a bottomless clip he is using. It never ends. Yeah. If that's, that were an that's actual. New, that's the future, Chris. Just bottomless SMGs. Bottom, that that's was, right. Just endlessly shoot. And then the movie ends where it looks like spooner has grown and evolved and has moved past his prejudices and sunny has yeah, evolved. evolved too so they've both evolved granted sunny was uh, designed in a way to evolve mm-hmm. and spooner was just being stubborn and they've both they've both grown beyond that they ended up uh winking and shaking hands but now what has sunny gone and become the king of the ns5s or something <laughs> yes he takes the ns5s on a trip through the desert the Lake Michigan Desert. Yeah. Maybe they rebuild the bridge. They're going, they finished the bridge. They're going to the UP. They're starting a robot colony in the UP. <laughs> he becomes Moses. I hope not. I, apparently, Sonny has now become Charlton Heston. <laughs> but it's not like the other NS5s got like the emotion downloaded into them. So would they just look at him and be like, illogical? Yeah, Vicky's gone, so... Yeah. They don't have an understanding of the complexities that Sonny has. So what are they just going like, to do? What happens? What happens to those robots? So I think Sonny is just going to become like this benevolent dictator who's bossing around all these NS5s. Like, build me a house, please. Because with the destruction of Vicky, shouldn't that have 
broken, like ended all the NS5s? That should have broken all of the robots. So. Because apparently like, the and apparently the entire city is like run by Vicky. <laughs> Did you, did you so ca- what happened? Did you catch that too? Like yeah, yeah, I, no. I reduced traffic collisions by nine percent this year. What the frick happened? So she gets shut down, and all of a sudden you just hear, <laughs> "We're on fire!" You just Call hear thousands. You just hear thousands of car crashes throughout the city <laughs> because one AI is now gone. <laughs> How do we put out fires? I don't know. I don't know. We turned these over to robots fifteen years ago. <laughs> do we use water? <laughs> My FedEx package. It hasn't gotten there yet. It's like, where's the tracking? There is no tracking. We got rid of them. We got rid of it when we got robots. They call customer service. No one's there. Oh, man. It's no robots. That's the movie I want to see. The you want to see the aftermath of <laughs> the iRobot after- and Vicky's gone? That's right. The sequel. Fallout. Oh, my God. That would be great. <laughs> so I think this is a good point now to discuss the legacy yes. of iRobot. So this film was a modest box office success. It grossed $350 million worldwide, so not too shabby. Nice summer blockbuster back in the day before billion-dollar films became the trend. However, this maintains a 55% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, it's it was very divisive between uh, critics. Yeah. They did not enjoy it all. <laughs> it was nominated for an Academy Award. Special effects, probably, yeah. right? It yeah. lost to Spider-Man 2. I haven't seen it in a while, so I can't really say. And tons and tons and tons of product placement in this film. Uh, Converse with the Chuck Taylors. You have uh, Tecate, JVC. Dosakis. Um, Audi designed that car that we see so prominently in the film, the RSQ, mm-hmm. and that helped boost their brand visibility in America. So they just, they loaded up. I think they actually did start selling like that car though, because we've seen this in other films where a company designs a concept car, but then it's not released to the public. So I think Minority Report was another uh, another example of that. I don't know if it was an Audi that designed a car for that, but that one was not released. I remember that. Okay. Uh, I haven't seen Minority Report I think Report a more a recent example is um, the Justice League and all the fancy cars that Batfleck is driving around that aren't released. Did you just say Batfleck? Batfleck. Ben Affleck, Batman, Batfleck. The retired Batfleck. Yeah, it's now Robert Pattinson. Really? Yeah, that uh, that sparkly chode from the Twilight film. Chode! <laughs> So he's going to be half bat, half vampire. You know what? I don't want to trash him too much because we don't know how he's going to do. And people were doing the same thing to Daniel Craig when he was cast as James Bond. So the jury remains. The ju- we will see when the film comes out. I don't want to. That's right. Don't want to drag him too harshly. And I guess Alex Proyas had a difficult time working with 20th Century Fox. Oh. I guess the head of the studio told him he had to add more jokes to the film just days before so the premiere. So it's their fault. Yeah. Okay. Wow, so that's probably why some of them are so like ham-fisted. Because they probably had to call Will Smith in for like quick No, scenes. the studio told him to do this days before the premiere. And by then, the film's been finished for months. You're not adding anything to the movie at this point. Oh, so they told him to add more. Yeah. But there is like, screw you, man. It's like, there's not enough time to do that. You yeah. have to change everything. Just do some voiceovers. Stop it. Stop meddling. <laughs> Executives. But I think this movie, too, is also in a unique position Given that it is relatively, you know, some a long time has passed since it came out. It's been 15 years. Yeah. Do you think we could get a sequel or even a remake? So they were going to do a sequel, 
but then he like scrapped it. I think that a writer in 07, he said the only way it would be a sequel is if it was in space, which, okay. <laughs> okay. I still would like to see the aftermath, but that's fair. I think a reboot would be kind of cool, you know, because it's, it's well known, but not that well known. Yeah. So I think you could do a nice soft reboot. I think this would actually work better as maybe a television show. Ooh, that would be dope. Or like, you, like a prequel all the way up. Like you could see Will Smith's character before the crash. Or and maybe it's after. Will Smith's character and Sonny comes back and they solve crimes. Like Sonny's So like a sci-fi version of Lethal Weapon, but without the comedy. That would be dope. Yeah. I could get behind I, that. I could get behind that too. Because then you can flesh out the characters more. Hear about his horrible ex-wife. <laughs> or why he was horrible. <laughs> or Will Smith keeps saying he's too old for this stuff. Right. To come at us, Hollywood, with a iRobot <laughs> television show. Right. We're pitching you stuff. Give us a listen. So, Sean, what do you give iRobot with our rating scale of wouldn't watch, would watch, would own, and would host viewing parties? What do you give Will Smith's iRobot? I would watch it. If it's on TV, I'd watch it. Hmm. I do like the murder mystery elements. That's right up in my wheelhouse. Any mystery I'll check out. And um, it's really good pretty much up until the end. Yeah. Climax. I mean, it's a great, if you like mystery, check it out. If you can get by the product placement, (laughs) the CGI isn't too hokey until the end. I think this is an interesting take on the robot genre. Mm -hmm. Will Smith is definitely the anchor of this movie, surrounded by decent supporting roles. Mm -hmm. But again, this isn't... The, the performances in this movie are nothing really to write home about. No. I mean, James Cromwell is dead for the most of the movie, and Bruce Greenwood is your typical villainous, greedy CEO. With abnormally small coffee cups. Yeah. I need a man-sized coffee. That's right. And why does Will Smith need so much sugar? I was like, I was thinking, I'm like, is that like in for the robot arm? Does he like need to feed it sugar so it keeps going? Like that's no, what he's working it. out the other arm so his body's going to look asymmetrical. Right. No, he's working out the robot arm. Really? I was like, why is he? See, that's what well, I was. he's only working out the one arm though, yeah, so his lo- body's going to be asymmetrical still. That's what I mean. I'm like, what? what is up with this robot arm? Does it like fatigue and it needs to be powered by sugar or something? I like, thought I it just ran on like nine volt batteries or something. Same. Explain it to me. I didn't understand that. But I have to agree with you. This is a wood watch for me. I'd be a little hesitant to add it to my collection, mostly because this isn't even the best Will Smith science fiction film. No, it is better than After Earth. Yeah. That train wreck. <laughs> so I think that about does it for iRobot this week. Yeah. What do you say we pick our next film, Sean? Yes, let's consult the Oracle, a.k.a. Major Samantha. Yes, we're going to enlist our friendly random number generator AI and between uh, one and 118 films, she has selected number 68. Are you ready for this one? Oh, I'm ready. It is the 2012 time travel murder film directed by ryan johnson and starting joseph gordon levitt it is looper yes i freaking love this film yes this is a great movie some people say that this is bruce willis's last film that he actually gave a crap about (laughs) (laughs) acting wise and i i cannot like fanboy enough about this film i'm so yoked this is amazing the looper will be our film for next time and if you enjoyed the show Please go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review or an honest review, whatever your heart desires. It helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at FourceFed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find podcasts. And please subscribe so you never miss an episode. And finally, you can check out our website, forcefedsci-fi.com for show notes and links to all of our social media. So for myself and Sean Cole, we'll see you next time. Force-fed sci-fi is written and hosted by Sean Culp and Chris Rupp. Website design associate producer and editing by Jeremy Kesky. Artwork designed by Mike Berger. Theme music composed and performed by Custom Anthem.